This is Project 1521. I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Today is July 26, 2021. Coming up on the show, Project 1521 poet Darren J. DeLeon talks about how writing has been the mediator between him and experiences with the land. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Go ahead and subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe to listen to upcoming shows. Look for our GoFundMe link in the podcast description. And now, an update about the GoFundMe campaign from Project 1521 member Yago Kira. Hey there, I'm Yago Kira, owner of Inches Press, caretaker of the GoFundMe campaign, and member of Project 1521. You Will Not Be Forgotten is the first in a series of publications that addresses the 500 years of resistance since the arrival of Cortes and the fall of the Aztec Empire. We are at 27% of our fundraising goal with five more weeks left. You can find the GoFundMe link in the podcast description. We want to thank the following individuals for their generous support and donations. We thank David for officially joining the family. Thank you. We also want to thank Dr. Karina from Tijuas for her generous donation. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you to Cynthia from Los for your love and donation. To the very artistic Kim from L.A., thank you. Thank you to the Guzman Lopez family. Your help is certainly appreciated. Thank you to Sandy, whose inspirational work has fueled our creativity. To Lydia, thank you for joining the family and representing the LBC. And as always, a big thank you to Anonymous. Our family of donors is getting larger, but there's still plenty of room for everyone. For a $25 donation, we will ship you a copy of our first poetry collection anywhere in the continental United States. You'll also receive a thank you acknowledgement in the publication. With that said, we hope that you can become part of our family of donors. Donate now, and when the book arrives, you can proudly display it and say, yeah, I helped fund that. Once again... Help us reach our goal by donating. You can find the GoFundMe link in the podcast description. Donate today. Become family. Thank you. Project 1521 writer Darren J. DeLeon has been listening to the land for a long time. The ways he listens and interacts with the land have changed over time. Listen to what the land is saying to you is a phrase I've been hearing from Southern California American Indian scholars and tribal members for a few years. I wanted to learn more. So I talked to Teresa Greger. I am an assistant professor in the program in American Indian Studies at California State University, Long Beach. And I am Epai from the Epai Nation of Santa Isabel and also Yoem, which is Yaki. Where does this phrase, listen to what the land is saying to you, where does that come from? I've heard... In my experience growing up and in my educational background from tribal educators and elders and cultural bearers, I've heard the phrase many times and, and said in various ways. Um, but essentially, uh, one of the people that I quote most often who talks about listening to the land and allowing the land to speak to you and, and share its own stories is uh, John Paul Jones. He's an architect and he's Choctaw and he designed the National Museum of the American Indian. He came and presented to faculty, staff, and students at Cal State Pavugna about four years ago and kind of shared his philosophy for building 
And it begins with listening to the land. And I thought he had a really beautiful way of expressing um, that concept, which is that when you walk on the land and really kind of ground yourself in a space or place and quiet your mind and kind of close your eyes, you can start to hear so much more and feel so much more around you that's emanating from the land, right? So he talked about his process with design that it always starts with that very basic relationship and reconnection to the land. And for me also, the way that I talk to students about the significance of the land in Native studies is that everything that we know and believe and are taught and practice emanates from from the land, from a story about the land, a relationship to the land, that connection to the land. How do Native Americans apply this, carry the carry this out? In American Indian studies as a discipline, land is a fundamental principle of how we teach American Indian studies. Again, it's all place-based in origin. So we start quite literally from the ground up to talk about the first peoples of the land, who uh, who are who are indigenous, how did they arrive there, um, what has been their experience in terms of being um, stewards of the land, um, what has the land taught them, how has the land taught the people how to exist and coexist in those places for so long. Um, and those are often in our creation stories, in our origin stories. Um, and they feature not just humans, but our other relatives, the plants, the animals, you know, water, air, even even our relatives in, in the sky world. So we, the way I teach it is that it's place-based, it's specific, and, and from that point, you sort of, if you want to think in a circular way, you know, you sort of have this central anchor, and then everything else sort of radiates and emanates from that center, right? And, and you can grow in concentric circles and embrace more and more and include more and more stories, you know, the further and further you go from the center. You've probably noticed how in the last uh, five, maybe more years, maybe five to 10 years, the land acknowledgments, you know, these statements at the beginning of meetings, public events, um, you know, these statements that the meeting is taking place and the people there are on the land that used to belong to, and, you know, you name the tribe and you name name the nation, and that the land was not ceded, was not given up willingly. These are, These statements have become very common. You hear them a lot. I'm wondering to what extent you think that, you know, this view of listening to what the land is saying to you should become as common as that, should be adopted by mainstream and non-Native people and groups? I actually do think that. And again, I promote this kind of thinking with my students um, as sort of a process of decolonization in a way. And I don't mean decolonization like we're trying to overthrow anything, but really just to rethink our relationships, right, with the land, with people in our community, with ourselves in certain spaces and places. So I think the land and territorial acknowledgement 
trend right now or movement, if you will, is is really important. And it is a first step in terms of having first peoples and their connection to their homelands recognized and acknowledged and made visible because so often it's erased and or it's placed as an afterthought or an asterisk to the footnote of whatever event or activity is taking place. So I think in terms of having, helping to share with the dominant culture or mainstream culture or other cultures, this notion of the connection to the land, I think is important and it has all kinds of potential impacts, right? Not just in terms of building relationships about understanding the history of what brought all the people to a specific place and how those people transformed the land, but also in terms of even climate change and environmental justice in a way that if you start to look at the spaces you inhabit and really take time to listen to the land and what the land needs and shift from yourself as being a human being, as being somebody that is maybe more privileged or entitled than than what the land has to say or do, I think it's more humbling. And I think that is a native practice, um, again, to build relationship and to be in relationship with the world around you, not just with, you know, what we manufacture and create as humans. A couple of years ago, I was at a presentation, academic presentation at UCLA of uh, Native American Studies master's students. And one of the students talked about how when she walks through the Westwood campus and sees a part of the campus where there's a dip, she thinks of the creek and the water that used to flow through there. And that's what I think of when I hear the phrase, listen to what uh, the land is saying to you, when when somebody asks you, well, how can I, what step can I take to listen to the land? Is there is there a practical way you can help somebody to, to do that? I, sh- I share with students and, you know, when I give workshops that every chance you get, you should try to enjoy some, some time outdoor, whether it's where you live, if you have an apartment space, a home, if you get to travel, if you get to hike. And I always ask my students, tell me where you go. Where are the places you go when you go to meditate or reflect or kind of refuel and center yourself? We all have those places and spaces that we like to go to. Some might be indoor, like maybe people might want to go to the mall or the movie or, you know, whatever. Most are outdoor spaces though, right? The beach, a park, a mountaintop next to water, a lake, a river, things of that nature. And the students, once they sit back and start to think about it, I talk about how you literally are grounding yourself and how essential that connection is to maintain with the earth. In my language, in Ipaya, which is kumiai, our word for body is the same word for earth. It's mat, mat. So I would say makopai elskwanan. I am a person, my body is from Elshquanon, which is the caterpillar's house or the knolls. And that's physically locating me as a human being, as a person within my ancestral homeland, right? So there's like not a separation. And that saying, your body is a temple, right? I think it takes on new dimensions when I think about it in my native language, that our earth is also what provides for us, right? Is our first mother, And so students then start to wrap their heads around 
this idea and concept and just become more conscientious about those connections that they have uh, with the land and with spaces. And I always say, don't live at an address, like really and truly think about the place where you reside and, you know, think about who was there before you, who were those first people. And I like to let them know that anywhere they go in the Americas, it's indigenous land, it's native land, there's first peoples everywhere. And you should always take the time, whether you're working or traveling, or relocating somewhere to find out who those people are, because it just deepens that connection. And I think you are, you do become a better steward, like the student was saying, she could see changes in the landscape, and she knew things had been diverted, right, maybe paved over, built over, but that those dips still signal that the land has its own movements, right? Has its own structure, has its own dimensions. And when things crumble and fall away, the land takes itself back. And and we do have regrowth. It may take time, but it's still there. And so I think having that understanding can help us appreciate uh, more what the spaces we all share. But then I think also it can start to extend to maybe becoming more open to different kinds of relationships with people that are different. Than ourselves. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks, Adolfo. I met Darren J. DeLeon in about 1990. We were both working on Chicano student newspapers and radio shows in college. Later, we both performed in poetry ensembles, me in the Taco Shop Poets, him in Los Delicados, which he co-founded 25 years ago in San Francisco. He's been a radio journalist, a DJ, and artivist. Have you heard that word before? Artivist, an artist, and activist? There's a lot to talk about, but our focus today is on something very important to Darren, the land. Physical, spiritual, its past, present, and future. This is a poem entitled Dirty Laundry Full of Blood. I wrote this in 1997 while I was attending the summer arts program at Cal State Long Beach or Cal State Pavunga. And it's a, it's a, it's a couple of different stories. It's about this relationship to land, especially people who are migrating. And it's all set. The, the main character is this uh, gentleman who leaves Mexico and makes his way to Canada to watch the World Series, a very American sport. But in the process he goes through this kind of American experience of uh, what it's surrounded by. And that, that type of treatment that's being given to him has its basis on the treatment of the indigenous people of this country. And, you know, and of course the, you know, the Mexicano is also an extension of that indigenous population of the Americas. Dirty laundry full of blood. Dirty laundry, full of blood, NAFTA be your name. Thy treaty come and the corporation won in the north as it is in their heaven. Televised stadium seat for the 1993 
World Series, NBC Sports, the canonization of Joe Carter. Two and two count, the pitcher checks the signs and the pitch. Joe Carter, the hardest home run ever hit in the face of this earth. Joe Carter, arm-raising Canadian trot around the American bases. Joe Carter, full of sweet Blue Jay tears. Joe Carter, MVP trophy with a ball on top. Joe Carter, cover of Sports Illustrated. Joe Carter didn't give a Joe Garagiola ass about the Mexican flag that hung on the left field wall in Toronto, Canada. Toronto, Monsanto, AstroTurf. Toronto, under the dome. Toronto, beaming off satellites. Toronto, una bandera mexicana in the loneliest left field seats. Toronto and film at 11 directors. Toronto reframed the shot. Toronto and cropped Las Tres Colores. Toronto from the evening news sports. Toronto, who cut the shot that dropped the pop and made Mexico stop in the Canadian border shop? He moved more north than was needed, more north as to never be recognized. True north, a salmon out of water, squirming in his sea. Foothold in Canada. To claim the land in the name of the land. Names. Mexica, Gawiya, Meskwaki, Sekai, Tongva, Chichanish. Float beneath the 10,000 square feet of slab concrete. What do you call a Chicano in Toronto? A Chicano. But how did you get there? Did you swim, walk, jump, climb, sneak, phone, fax, email, UPS, snail mail, express? I could spot those moving Mexicans one mile away. Televised stadium seat. Northward bound through gringo land jack, narrow-minded tunnels, red-necked rivers, a king-size bed of white sheet rhetoric. Slapped in Temecula, past no points unchecked, 100 miles from Hollywood. Radical brown chic. Resiste. Kathy Lee cries a song in an off-off-off-border town. Coffee beans from somewhere. The Mexicans are moving cat chased at supreme speed. Sheriff Dragon and his clan, El Rio Grande in El Monte, helicopter documents footprints, counts the blows one to 187. Who wants to go shopping for another country? How does it feel? To be on your own, no protection at all. Just like a Mexicano in Toronto. South, there is a war. South, dead toxin fish. South, burning feet. South, weekend warriors paint bullets. South, headlights from Ford trucks. South. Plastic bags on feet, south, shot by another, south, raped by cowboy boots, south, 
below the frontera belt, south, metal gallery ducks, south, nervous national guard, south, chase the nationals, south, call it training, south, floating arms, south, dead Christian dollars, south, economic Easters, south, the three stooges, Larry, Moe, and these United States, south, city bank deposits, south, Arnold Palmer golf courses, south, asbestos, south, anarchy is the flavor of my gum, south, south, moving south by south. Dirty laundry, full of blood, a green card with my name. The Mexicans are moving. The problem is they are moving across the street from me. They made 187 reasons why he can justify bullets in their chest. She must, he must have that house. She must have that house on top of the hill. He washes ivory hands in toxic rivers, wipes them on dead fish towels. They spit in the four directions. She eats grapes. He shaves in the mirror on the back of the bullet. They spin and rinse their clothes and newspaper stands, hang them to dry on TV news, conduct a poll, democratically open our wallets, hand a fiver to La Migra to buy more beer, sunglasses, jet skis, tax V8 gas, maquiladora life jackets, Xerox copies of Happy Days. A belly full of sludge served on silver platters. The congregation? The congregation takes the host. The congregation takes the host and quietly files. The congregation takes the host and quietly files into suburban rows. Dirty laundry. Full of blood. Another treaty that imprisons us. Dirty laundry, full of blood. How long can you hold this game? In 1996 and 97, I attended the Cal State Summer Arts Program and took a class, the Mani Crudo Performance Ensemble class that was led by Juan Felipe Herrera and Margarita Luna Robles. And in that class, we started to learn how to write via the body and body movements. And that completely just blew open my creativity. But being inside the program, it was a two-week program. We had to stay inside the dorms. And if you know the layout of Cal State Pavunga, the dorms are also like, they're on like the northeast side of the, the campus. We were all the way out at the perimeter of the campus and right across the street from the dorms was this nice little field, which is now kind of like a parking lot and field still, the field's still there. But that first night that I stayed there, it was summer. And so I had to sleep with the window open and I slept with my head facing North, basically my head at this open window. But that night I got all these crazy, crazy dreams dreams that the type of dreams that I'd never had before, very surrealistic, very psychedelic, 
And those dreams continued for like the next two days. Then I got really curious about where are these dreams coming from? And I went to explore. You know, in the in the evenings after taking the workshops and, and doing all the, the writing exercises and, and dinner, we'd always just find a place just to kick back and unwind. So on this one particular night, I was like, let's go explore this, this, this land, this piece of land that I feel that this energy is coming from. So people, you know, all the poets got together and we walked over there. But as soon as we entered the grounds, immediately the, the weather dropped and the smell of fresh earth just overwhelmed us. It wasn't the smell of asphalt. It wasn't the smell of dirt. It was the smell of fresh earth, just that great, sweet smell. And so there was all these trees, you know, all these trees that were sitting there draping over. And there was these big, humongous rocks that we were able to sit up on. And we were sitting there and just talking and enjoying ourselves. And it felt very much like a kitchen conversation, like kitchen talk. And so we decided to explore a little bit, a little bit further. And the one thing I noticed is that there was this like ceremonial pole that was right in the middle of this, this area. And of course it was, you know, red, white, uh, black, and yellow. Immediately I knew this is like some, this is a ceremonial pole because there was offerings on it. There was little bags, spirit bags and little offerings all tied to it. First thing I thought, I was like, whoa, we're in a sacred spot. And I just kind of looked around and I was like, wow, what, you know, what, what is this? What is this? So immediately the next day I, I went and did my research and I wound up at the anthropology department on campus and I got there and I started asking about it and the, and the secretary there didn't really know too much. And I think he gave me some type of old Xerox copy of a newsletter about Pavunga. It, it told a story about this excavation that was happening. I mean, they're like doing development in this, in this field and they uncovered some stuff and they're kind of like, what is this stuff? And they realized what it was, was they had tapped into this area that was a, a site for indigenous people. And they were going to just continue to, to build on top of it until, you know, students and the community and and the indigenous organizations, they all stepped, stepped up and they said, no, 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 no. You can't do any of that stuff. We have to like do our investigation first and see what, you know, what's going on here. Of course, those in the Gabrieleno tribe, they knew what that area was. They're like, this is our, this is our sacred space. You can't develop it. This is like, this is almost like our garden of Eden. You know, if you think about it in Christian terms. And so they, you know, they, they, they stopped it temporarily. I mean, there was a big movement to stop it. I remember when I was an undergraduate at UC Riverside that we had Gabrieleno students and some of them were leaders in their, in their tribe. And they had been talking about this, this issue, but it was Long Beach and I was a little bit disconnected. And so I heard about it. I didn't really follow up a lot, but I knew that these students were involved with this movement. The movement had stopped a little bit and then it, the, the university wanted to, to put some uh, strip malls there on that area. And then that whole thing just opened up a new can of beans. And at this time, it got even bigger. That's what the, the newsletter was kind of describing a little bit about the area. And that the trees that were there, what I was to learn was that in their creation story, the trees, and they have these seed pods that, that drape down, that when those seed pods break open and they fall, the seeds hit the ground, that's how the humans populated the earth. 
I mean, this is her creation story. And then I learned that those big old rocks that we were sitting on, and those, there was indentations in them. But those were like a mocajete. They were like a little bowl, a little crushing bowl, and they were preparing the acorns. So literally, we were sitting in the middle of a kitchen. But this particular area is the area that they had designated as being their creation spot. So it was like probably the most sacred piece of land to them. The protest and the, the fight back was very successful. So they stopped all development in, in that area. And so as I was sleeping, that was the energy that was fueling these dreams, these wild dreams. So I continued to do my investigation and I knew I had to do something with it. And so that's, you know, when I wrote this piece, you know, I bring this whole history and I try to like, you know, condense it into this one piece. And of course, that saying, airing your dirty laundry, that's what I'm doing. As an American citizen of this country, I'm airing our dirty laundry and realizing that that laundry is full of blood. And it was this experience that helped me create dirty laundry full of blood. Thank you for following Project 1521. Darren's poetry will appear in our forthcoming book. You can help us reach more people. Tell two people you know about this podcast. And remember to subscribe. New episodes on Mondays.